Welcome to Essential Ethics and this next podcast in our series, Deciding with Children. Today, we're discussing deciding with adolescents and considering Gillick competence. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital. I'm joined today by Annabelle Mann, Legal Counsel at the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Annabelle. Thanks, John. I'm also joined by Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks, John. And I'm also joined by Professor Claire Delaney, Senior Clinical Ethicist at the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre and the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Claire. Thanks, John. What medical decisions can adolescents make for themselves? When faced with this question, clinicians often reach for Gillick competence as a way of thinking about adolescent decision-making. Gillick is based on a United Kingdom High Court decision in the late 1980s, which has gained considerable currency in common law countries and with clinicians. But does Gillick really help us as a tool for adolescent decision-making? How should we think about adolescents in their medical decision-making? To get us started, I think we need a really good understanding of what the Gillick case was. So, Annabelle, I might throw to you first, if you could explain to us, what is Gillick competence legally? Sure. So, Gillick was a case in the late 1980s in the UK House of Lords, um, and it related to a 16-year-old girl who was seeking the contraceptive pill. Her mother was not in agreement with this, and so she took the case through the courts. And it was ultimately determined, and it's been used as a legal principle, that a adolescent can make their own medical decisions once they have achieved a sufficient understanding and intelligence to enable him or her to understand fully what is proposed. This was, as is good law in Australia, it was uh, brought into Australian law by the High Court in what's called Marion's case. And basically what it says is that a, a medical decision making by an adolescent is sort of a sliding scale so or, or any child. So maybe a five-year-old can agree to a Band-Aid being put on a, a cut at school or by a doctor right up to what sort of decisions require a 17, 18-year-old to really understand a very complex decision about a very complex medical treatment. So it's um, it's not a very fine line. It's, I imagine, difficult to kind of make these assessments in the clinical scenario. But that's, yeah, that's what the law says. Annabelle, we're here today because, as you might imagine, clinicians and ethicists are starting to question quite what, what Gillick might mean. Do, do you think it, it works legally? Well, to be honest with you, it's not applied legally very often. So through some cases, there's been a bit of an articulation of what characteristics might suggest that a child has this sufficient intelligence and understanding. Um, So things like an ability to assess the risks and benefits of a treatment, an ability to objectively assess if one of those risks was to come about, what how that would feel and and, um, the impact of that. And 
So I think these sort of pronouncements by the courts of these types of things that clinicians might be looking for, that's that's the law that's done its job. It's been applied quite a lot or discussed quite a lot in gender dysphoria cases. And so I think it's it's really only in these more controversial types of cases that Gillick has a part to play in, in the legal sort of um, arena, uh, but it's playing a role in the clinical arena every day. So, yeah, it's, it's a hard question to answer, I suppose, whether it works legally. Well, why don't we think about how it might work ethically and then I think there's going to be lots of opportunities for you to pop up during that discussion, Annabelle, and it's only going to come back to you during the podcast. So, Lynn, I might start with you. What do you see as the the ethical problems with Gillick in, in the way perhaps it was formulated and certainly the way that perhaps it's being used at the moment? So, John, if we take a step back to, to the basic point of Gillick, I take it that the, the basic claim of that judgment is that someone under the age of 18 could in some circumstances have the capacity to make uh, a valid autonomous consent at least, a decision to have a recommended medical treatment without needing a parent or guardian to make that decision for them. So I guess that's a really important point in itself. It tells us that um, in relation to adolescence, that's always a possibility which clinicians should keep in mind. In practice, it becomes an important consideration when it looks like the adolescent might be not wanting to have the medically recommended treatment. And in those situations, I think Gillick doesn't offer as much guidance ethically um, as it might legally, Uh, or at least there's a difference between how we might think ethically and how we might think legally about this situation. So as Annabelle was saying, the the principle of Gillick is once the child has achieved sufficient intelligence and understanding, they can make a decision. They're making a decision in favour of a recommended medical treatment. The stakes are often quite low there uh, and perhaps clinicians are not feeling a need to carefully assess whether they've reached that point if their parents are in the room as well and the young person saying yes to what's being recommended, you know, it doesn't really seem to matter all that much. But um, if the young person's looking like they're going to say no or they're not in favour of what's being proposed, um, they're potentially making a higher stakes decision. And one of the things that's really difficult ethically is to think about what weight to put on a young person's refusal of treatment where it looks like they're deciding uh, their decision is going to be contrary to their best interests, at least as the adults around them see it. So I think that's the hard ethical question. And I'm not sure that um, the the Gillick decisions actually help us get very far with the, the adolescent refusing treatment. So, Lynn, you're describing in a way um, a sort of consent refusal asymmetry uh, and, and perhaps it's easy to consent and uh, certainly clinicians have probably taken consent from an adult who perhaps doesn't have a lot of intelligence or capacity to weigh up everything but no one really questions that. But there's something different about refusing and that may not be different between adults and children but this is, I think one of the limitations of Gillick, this asymmetry? It feels like it's a space that uh, the legal judgment or the legal principle around Gillick doesn't answer as an ethical question. So we, we need some way of answering that, how much weight to put on 
the young person's refusal or the young person's differing view. It won't necessarily be a refusal. It could potentially be the other way around. Uh, the young person might want a treatment that their parent thinks is too risky. The young person wants to try a lung transplant for their CF. The parents are really worried about the risks and don't want to do it. So it could be the other way around. Uh, but when there's difference of opinion, um, I, I guess Gillick seems to just say, well, if the young person is Gillick competent, has that capacity, looks like there's no more space for the parents, and it's just up to the young person. Whereas if the young person is not Gillick competent, then it looks like it's no space for them and it's entirely up to the parents and the doctors. Or at least that seems to be how it it is discussed by clinicians, whether in, whether in fact the Gillick judgments imply that or not. So that it becomes a decisional authority issue. Who are we going to give decisional authority to. I'm going to cut to Claire because I think you've got some points to make and I can see Annabelle wincing over there too. So uh, we might then move to go back to Annabelle. Maybe thinking deeply rather oh, of than course. wincing. <laughs> um, I was just going to suggest counter to, to Lynn's suggestion that um, Gillick competence doesn't necessarily do the work required for um, a, for thinking about a refusal or for responding to but I think you could argue that it does in in a point form. It doesn't say how you do that work, but it does point to the need to probe a young person's capacities, their capacity to understand, um, to foresee consequences. Um, and t- so I, I think it points to some work needing to be done, which is ethical work about how much weight to give to this child's refusal, but it doesn't um, provide a, a way of doing it. And so if clinicians just rely on the dot points at the surface level, they can probably form the view that they're not Gillick competent. But if they do the work that Gillick is pointing to, I think you know, they can interrogate the refusal and, and start to decide whether to give it as much weight as the parent's perspective. So, so Claire, I think if I understand you, you're thinking about a process. So rather than a single judgment and rather than you can decide or you can, you know, kid can decide, parent can decide, mm. that what it flags is that there's work to be done and a process to go through to try and arrive at something that looks like shared decision-making between child, parent and, and, and doctor. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm in a roundabout way agreeing with Lynn, really, that there is ethical work to be done here. Um, you, you do have to sort out how to consider and what, yeah, what weight, what, what is the ethical significance of the child's views and in order to decide about the refusal rather than just have an asymmetry and um, go with that. I think Lynn wants to add something there. Well, it's really, I guess, a framing of the question. So perhaps a better way of understanding what I was trying to say is that Gillick seems to be silent on some things that seem to need answers. And I'm looking at Annabelle's facial expression and she's not sure, so let's see what she's got to say. Well, so I think two points to make. So the first in response to that is that Gillick just does set this framework. It says that a child, if they're intelligent enough and they're mature enough and they're properly weighing up the pros and cons and the risks, 
can make a decision on their own. Like you, you said, that, mm. that's pretty much a very good synopsis of Gillick. So then how we apply that is a different question. Mm. Um, but what I was going to say before is that refusal actually has been considered both in the UK and in Australia um, and I think probably, unfortunately, though I'm moving into the ethical space, um, they have said that even if a child is determined by weighing up all of this stuff to be Gillick competent, the court can still override their decision to refuse. So they, they have separated out this concept of consent and refusal and, and, and basically said that a Gillick competent child's adolescence refusal still can be overridden. So, Annabelle, I'm confused by that. Uh, one might think you can make some decisions and not others. So I, I guess one of the things about Gillick is we often think it's situational. This specific decision to be made, can you make it as a child or adolescent or, or, or not make it? And so I'm still confused by, by, by what you've said in that somebody is weighing it up properly. They just happen to disagree with us, which is a way of saying they haven't either haven't weighted up properly or they haven't weighted up in the way we would. That's right. So they, the cases say that, that they do consider it to be about this decision and the child has been deemed to be Gillick competent to make this decision, but we still think um, there's a jurisdiction of the courts called the parents patrie jurisdiction, which is a general um, power of the courts to make decisions that are in the interests of... of, of um, vulnerable people, including children. Um, so they use, they invoke this jurisdiction to say, well, notwithstanding the fact that you've been deemed Gillick competent to make this specific decision, we think we need to override you because the decision is not in your interests. Claire. Um, do you, do you think that when you, when the courts say, um, it's, uh, we can override, um, a decision if it's not in your interests as a child or is a better framing up what they're really doing, protecting, they have a they have a duty to protect a child from a decision which would be harmful to them, that they have a protective yes, that, role. Yes, that is what the jurisdiction is yeah. intended to, yeah. to do. Yeah. Okay, which, which brings in the consequences of the decision or of the refusal seems to be rather important. Is this just harm minimisation, Lynn? I think there's a bit of harm minimisation going on around here. And uh, if we go back to the original Gillick judgment, one of the things that that enabled was that a young woman who was sexually active could get access to contraception against her mother's wishes. Uh, and the uh, the medical practitioner in that case thought that that would protect her from harm which I think is a reasonable judgment. Uh, and so allowing her to be the, saying that she's the decision maker and her mother's consent is not required, uh, has the effect of protecting her from harm. Um, and in the situations where the court overrides the, uh, a young ad an adolescent's refusal of treatment on the basis that um, that refusal is going to cause harm, to the adolescent. We can see that that concern about protecting people from harms coming in in both places. And I guess the thing that's striking is that once you turn 18, the court, if I'm right, Annabelle, doesn't have power to override your decision that will put you Assuming you're way. competent. Assuming yes. you're competent. So somehow, I think legally, 
the competent, the Gillick competent adolescent is in a somewhat dis- different position from the competent 18-year-old and the person who's turned 18 can refuse, even if it's going to cause harm and the court doesn't override it. Two days earlier before their 18th birthday, they could refuse and the court cannot, can and, and has overridden on the basis that that would cause harm to that young person. That's right. And, and I think that's merely because the court no longer has any jurisdiction for the competent adult. Um, so they yeah. can't stop them doing things that they don't think are in their best interest. So I think one of the things that's potentially confusing is that we, in, so in a clinical setting, we're used to the idea that if someone's competent, they have a right to make their own decision and their refusals of treatment should be respected in the same way as their uh, consents to treatment should. Um, and if so, if we just go with the idea that the adolescent could be competent, we, we're naturally inclined to think, well, ethically, that means that they can they should be allowed to refuse as much as they should be allowed to consent. Uh, and yet that's not at least how uh, it plays out legally because that adolescent Gillick competent consent uh, refusal can be overridden. Yeah, that's right. So to me that raises the ethical question of, okay, so what is the nature of what kind of weight are we putting on the young person's decision and is it actually about, is it just about the consequences of the decision? That's how we decide what weight to put on it. Or is it something about the characteristics of the adolescent themselves and their capacity to think it through and give reasons and understand well? Or is it all, or is it really just about we respect their decision or give weight to their decision if um, it's a decision that's in their best interests or doesn't cause them harm, no matter how they arrived at it? Do you think that one of the issues is that Gillick conflates consent with autonomy, because in my sort of practical clinical experience and when and cases come up, and particularly cases about refusal, then people reach for Gillick, say, well, the child's Gillick competence, Gillick competent, they're making lots of decisions in medicine and outside in their life, we, we can let them make a decision. And it strikes me that we don't give full autonomy to, to children that that's a gradual process of acquisition, but we still respect them. And we talked about that in our first podcast and definitely last week when thinking of small children. So they have a moral status, but just not full autonomy. And so somewhere someone's thinking, well, they're an autonomous or nearly autonomous being, therefore they can consent or refuse to everything. And that consent or that even that what's conflated is consent and refusal are conflated. I think on your point about um, is consent and autonomy conflated, uh, and if I if I uh, backtrack a little bit and say, well, let's look at Gillick competence does some work about whether or, or has something to say about whether a young person has enough competence to consent to something, to to agree to something on their own, um, and so I think that. Autonomy lives in there but is bigger than the procedures of consent. So the elements of consent include that, you know, the doctor or the clinician has to give some information, uh, that the person has to then understand, process that information, including um, understand not only just what's going to happen to them and remember that maybe, but also how it's going to affect them and whether that, 
and now I'm going a bit deeper than I think the work does, but uh, whether that, that aligns with their general views about what's good for them. And it also, another element is voluntariness, that the, they freely give their, um, their consent, having considered those, uh, that information. So there's elements there of consent um, and those elements are part of Gillick, but I think autonomy, when you, when you apply it to an adolescent, is a limited version a more, you know, it's got bound boundaries around it, and that is because you've already said the um, the autonomy of um, a child or an adolescent may not be as robust and uh, as an adult uh, in their capacity to work out what they want freely without in influences. So I think autonomy is bigger than consent. Is the is the um, is the answer. To, to that conflation, and I don't think you should conflate them. I think autonomy underpins consent, but there's more to uh, respecting somebody's autonomy other than giving them information and allowing them to make a decision. So I think that's where we, we might be heading is that how do you ethically respect an adolescent's autonomy it's more than thinking about whether they're Gillick competent. It's thinking about how you might even advance their autonomy so that they can understand information. That's a great answer, Claire, because I th also think it brings us back to one of the foundational concepts in our deciding with, with children, which, which is about framing respect for autonomy, which has its limitations in this space, as respect for persons and gives us a much wider construct to work in. And and so and so and it's good then allowing us to separate consent and autonomy and see their relative value. So two things are raised there, and I'd like to come back to Annabelle. And one is about this: you know, what does capacity to make this decision look like, and who is the, who might the courts you know re rely on? Uh, and also, Lynn, I want you to have a little think about: is this voluntariness? Because it's sometimes very hard for kids to be separated from their parents or parents to separate from the kids and to allow a decision to be genuinely voluntary. Annabelle. Yeah. So, um, look, as I said before, the courts have sort of made some noises around the types of things they might want to see. Um, things, phrases like mature and considered, sophisticated reflection, um, sees the genu genuine benefits of the procedure, assess objectively. So I guess what has now come about is is a bit of a checklist for, for doctors to, um, if they were in a court proceeding where Gillick competence was in question, they would do a report which would be given in evidence in the court which would address each of these factors and say, in my view, the child is Gillick competent because they mature and considered and sophisticated reflection and so on and so forth. Um, I believe the court would generally, unless it was, you know, just not really addressing those points, but if it was a genuine report that reflected on these things, I think the court would accept the clinician's view. So they have a standard to which clinicians should uh, work towards. Yeah. And, and, I think there, and there has been um, in the gender space, as I said before, some you know, list that are now pretty much being used as a checklist of the types of things that would indicate that a child's skill is competent to make that decision. All right, Lynn. So what about then 
the doctor's done their due diligence and I think would go through that intuitively even if they couldn't name those criteria listed by the courts. But what about this aspect of, of voluntariness? Mm. So in answering this, I want to go back to two things that Claire said earlier. One is part of the process of understanding is then to relate the information you've got to uh, your life and what matters to you, your values, uh, and then, as Claire said, to make a voluntary decision. So uh, I think those are two areas uh, of, of difficulty, so to speak, for adolescents. So it's clear that, uh, at least it's clear to me, that an adolescent living with their parents in that family, they've always lived in that family, their their values are very much influenced by that family and it's hard, it's harder for a young person in that position to have developed their own independent values uh, that have come about from their own reflection rather than essentially soaking up what they've been brought up with. So that's, uh, there's a question around values there. Now, of course, that's true for adults as well. You don't magically become super self-reflective when you turn 18 and it's, I'm sorry, John, you don't. <laughs> Maybe it was different for you. Most people don't. Um, so, so that's an ongoing process. And I guess it's the thing that worries clinicians in uh, adult world when adults refuse for, for reasons which the clinicians think maybe are not reflected on and not really their own reasons. So there's that issue. Then the, j just the voluntariness issue, if you're dependent on your parents, it's actually like financially and f for all your living arrangements and everything you need in your life, it's actually potentially quite hard to make a decision to, to say that you want something different from what your parents are wanting, which alerts us to the possibility that mm, it's it's not the refusals that we should be concerned about, but sometimes the consent of the adolescent who agrees to something, but maybe they, you know, says that they agree, but they might not inside actually agree, but they don't have a way of expressing that. So, I mean, that goes to Claire's point about process and taking time to draw out the adolescent and spending time with them individually to assess their values and see what decision-making is like. Can I ask Annabelle a question, John? Of course. So Claire and I both talked about consent in terms of the values and the voluntariness. Does the law see consent in that way? Because my, uh, the reason I'm asking is that most of the things that you've talked about there in terms of pointers to does the child have, a capaci have capacity to consent are about understanding um, so the law uh, requires consent to medical treatment um, and they require that for adults and children equally. Um, without that consent, a, a clinician can get into some hot water. There, there could be, um, you know, civil, criminal um, proceedings that could follow medical treatment that's provided without consent. So if I were to go to court and say I didn't consent to that procedure, not on the basis that I didn't get the information, but that I didn't get a chance to make a free decision... Then, yeah, that would is the court a, be worried about that? Yeah, that would be a consideration. Those those types of concepts of voluntariness and being um, able to being given all the information and having an opportunity to to properly consider that information is all considered by the court in terms of whether the consent is valid or not. Right. Yes. Okay. And I think to add to that, um, the, in cases of informed consent or allegedly not 
the doctor or clinician has not given sufficient informed consent. The court has very much focused on the uh, subjective views and values and concerns of the patient and the fact that the doctor must try to get inside that person's head to some degree uh, in framing information so that they will understand as opposed to framing it from a a very standardised, here is the information we give to every single patient. Um, Correct. And also not only do they need to frame it in such a way um, so that they're understood, but they also need to consider what information would be material is the term they use to that individual. So for example, um, the the case Rogers and Whitaker was about um, a a risk, a person who was blind in one eye and and the risk to the the second eye was much more important to that individual than someone who still had sight in in the other eye. So, um, but, but But raises the fact that Gillick um, doesn't do that same amount of work about the advocacy role of the doctor in trying to understand an adolescent's worldview? Um, I th- I don't know of any case law on that point, but I would like to think that this, a similar subjective consideration of what is important to that child should also be done by the clinician in, a, in mm. an instance where they're dealing with a really mm. competent child. Mm. Lynn, do you think that... Uh, the, the Gillick, I'm not happy with, with Gillick. I think we're talking about something else. But do you think it's a effective tiebreaker device um, when um, doctors and uh, parents might disagree about something that then the voice of the child or the adolescent becomes the tiebreaker? So I'm thinking about the concept of tiebreakers. So if the young person wants something... And let's make it easy. The young person wants something and the clinicians and parents think that that's not an appropriate medical choice and let's not even worry about whether it's a consent or a refusal. Somehow you have to make a decision. So in some sense, a tiebreaker is needed. Or perhaps I would prefer to frame it as a way of understanding the comparative weight that should be given to the views of those parties is needed because you have to make a decision. Uh, sometimes decisions can be delayed because it's not an urgent matter and there's time maybe for the young person to gain some more maturity, to think it through. There's also time for the parents and clinicians maybe to understand better what the young person's on about um, and what matters to them. Uh, and then hopefully you end up in a situation where you don't need a tiebreaker in the sense of uh, you know, um, a hand that comes down one side or the other because Presumably the ideal is shared decision-making where everyone ends up on the same page. On the other hand, there'll be situations where a decision has to be made now and you have to go one way or the other. So so sometimes a tiebreaker idea is needed. And doctors see, I think doc- doctors need legal backing. So that I guess they need some sort of framework in which to be confident um, that they that they can decide one way or the other in certain circumstances. Annabelle's frowning yeah, again. Yeah, I think that the concept of tiebreaker, whilst I like it ethically, is difficult legally because it depends on whether that 
individual who you're using as the tiebreaker, i.e. the child, is Gillick competent or not? Mm. Because they can't just be that middleman who makes the final decision. It's not a majority vote here. The law says that it's the person who should be making that decision who is is the valid consent giver. I um, think... Yeah, I think it's Gillick is not so much a tiebreaker as a um, tool or a set of considerations to help you uh, um, understand or um, work out what sort of level of significance the child's uh, wishes should take. And the level of significance is based upon their capacity to make a decision I think um, that's right. And also, you know, they're, they're, if they are Gillick competent, the law says their decision is final. Unless, uh, unless it's refusal. <laughs> in which case they're still Gillick competent. They've given a valid, in that sense, refusal, competent refusal, but for some other reason that's more important. Like the harm that might like come Like the to harm them. that might come. The law says we'll override that decision anyway. Let's road test a decision. What about it? decision for a vaccination. A parent doesn't want their child to have HPV vaccination. Child goes to school, thinks it's a good idea, hasn't got a signed consent form. Mm. Can they, can the nurse at school give them HPV vaccine? Depends how intelligent they are and how Normal much they intelligence, understand Annabelle, the risks. Normal thoughtful, they... they're considering their future because they know that later on they'll become sexually active and that puts them at risk of HPV virus and cervical cancer uh, or for a man, other types of cancer, and they'd like to have it. Prob- probably. It, again, it does depend on what they're showing in terms of how much they've being able to understand the risks? What are the risks? I think there'd probably be also some considerations beyond the capacity of the child to understand um, and to to make this decision because if you decided that, yes, this child is clearly Gillick competent, they've come to me independently, they understand the vaccine, they don't agree with their parents, they have formed views independently... That seems to tick all the boxes. But so on that basis, you give them the vaccination. They go home to a very unsafe environment where the conflict is such that they could be vulnerable to other harms, having done what they did. I I just wonder how that plays into your assessment purely of the child's uh, competence in that moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's an interest. This goes back to what I was suggesting before about um, adolescents being in a vulnerable position if they're living with their parents and dependent on their parents. And Claire, I think your reaction maybe would have been different if this 16 year old was not living with their parents, but you know, lived in a shared house with yeah. other students or something like that. So they're not going home to, to incur the wrath of their parents for having had a vaccination. Yeah. Um, but I've. <laughs> I guess if we really thought the young person was competent in this situation, it would include ability to take into account their parents' views about vaccination and to factor that into whether they wanted to have it or not. So for that young person, the decision to have a vaccination partly involves deciding to risk whatever reaction their parents might give. And so I guess in that situation... Mm, how would you know that their parents 
refuse, but it feels to me like inside the, the young person's head would need to be that consideration. It's not just the medical information, it's everything that's material well, to the decision. It could be inside the, I agree with you, it needs to be inside the um, trial, the, the young person's head, but what is the scope of the duty of the school nurse to get inside the child's head yeah. and to be able to justify the decision on that yeah. rather well? The expanded basis. Yep. Uh, and that's where I was starting to struggle because I was thinking, I was about to say, uh, so the school nurse should ask. But then I thought, well, A, you're going to then rely on what the young person says. And if I were a sensible young person, I wouldn't say my parents would disagree. I'd say, sorry, they forgot to sign the form. Um, so, so I'm not sure that you could get very far. That demonstrates a very competent <laughs> It does. It, it does so indeed. isn't this just, uh, Annabelle, isn't this just Gillick? I mean, this is a, you know, Mrs Gillick had a, a, an entrenched position, I think, informed by her religious views about contraception and, and premarital sex. And I've just described a situation where perhaps parents have a, a belief system about vaccines. Isn't this just identical? I think it is very similar. And, and I think one of the benefits that comes certainly legally from Gillick is the confidentiality. So mm. I think that you potentially don't end up in a situation where the 16-year-old cops the wrath of their parents because they are entitled to confidentiality. Um, the law in this space is is a bit difficult because there's there's nothing definitive that I know of. But I've always interpreted it that along with the right to consent to treatment comes the right to confidentiality because the parents, if they're not the ones consenting, no longer have a right or a need to have ah. the information. Mm. Um, so I think that is something that we need to be mindful of when we're determining how good Gillick is, that it also does afford these these adolescents that confidentiality. I think that's a really interesting point and it does open up um, more about what clinicians need to consider if they're going to to um, allow a child in separately from their parents to agree to something or in certain circumstances, not all, refuse something, then that also opens up a space about how they keep that information, uh, uh, the, the wider relationship, the ongoing relationship with the child and the information they provide to parents about the consultation. So it's it means quite a lot of planning about what will mm. this mean. So in terms of eth the ethical nuance, it seems like there's potentially quite a significant difference between a situation where parents and child are together or young person are together and they he all hear the same information, um, everyone knows what's going on and yet they end up having different views. Um, so the parents already know and kind of the, the privacy to that extent is, is not an issue Whereas in the situation you've described, John, and in the in the Gillick case, the parent's not even there. The parent doesn't know what's happening. So privacy is de definitely an issue because you have a decision whether to to even tell the parent or not. I think one of the difficult things about privacy. So we think of privacy as a right of an individual, and it gets us into this I think, murky territory about the extent to which parents have a claim over their children to know things about them in a way that you, Annabelle, don't have a claim over me to know things about me. But certainly as a parent, I would feel I have a claim to know things about my child because I'm their parent. 
and and the the Gillick judgment seems to say, well, actually, parent, you don't. Um, when, if your child's Gillick competence, competent and they have uh, consented to this recommended medical procedure, that's it. You don't even have any right to know about what's happened. Not sure whether the parents have to then pay the bill afterwards. So the, uh, the, the quote-unquote right to information about your child actually flows from uh, what's called parental responsibility. So you have a responsibility actually to make decisions on behalf of your child and in order to do that you need to have information. And as I was saying before, in my view, as the, the need to make that decision on behalf of your child falls away, so does your quote-unquote right, right. Mm. to information about them. But Annabelle, I think there's a, a practical issue here. So if your 14-year-old or my 14-year-old, um, I, I can't see what's going on behind the, the Medicare uh, ceiling or, or, or screen there. So whether they've been to a doctor or whatever, n- nothing, uh, nothing comes up anymore. So you know, 14, that seems to be Australian law that their privacy is protected and it's probably making assumption that someone around that age might be talking to their parents but yet the same parent has this responsibility you've just outlined or duty uh, and also is able to make decisions uh, but without the information. Well they would have a right to that information um, if they are still exercising that parental responsibility and making those decisions. They couldn't get it from the Medicare. How would they, could, the doctor's not allowed to tell them. Um, the Medicare system can't tell them that they've been to see a psychiatrist or a gynaecologist. It, it depends. If, if, they are no long, if they're not deemed Gillick competent, then they would be. I mean, you've got to – the law and the practicality of it sort of starts to come apart. So you've got to have systems in place. So our hospital has systems in place that will give information to parents until the child is 16, but only – after 16, we'd need the child's consent. And before 16, if they've been going to the doctor by themselves, then we might not mm. give it. So it's complex. But um, yeah. I think one of the things this discussion shows is that there's this is about more than uh, capacity for autonomy or capacity for decision making. So the privacy bit is really important. And the, the, the nature of the relationship between the uh, young adolescent, the adolescent child and the parent is also at stake. I think it's one of the reasons it gets really murky. So do we need some alternative uh, to, to Gillick? And Claire has proposed that it sort of triggers or should trigger a process that hopefully will arrive at a shared decision-making that respects the child as a person and considers their best interests and where appropriate tries to align that with the child's values, but harms might might prevent agreement with that. But that's not, maybe that's what Gillick is. It's a trigger for, for more thought. Lena, there are other, you know, do, do we need another term? Is it just... So I was sitting here thinking, where would we be now if Mrs Gillick had never found out that the, her daughter had been prescribed contraception? So there was no Gillick case and we didn't end up with the concept of Gillick competence. And yet, in practice, clinicians still have to make ethical decisions about how to manage what adolescents say, how much information to give to them, how much weight to put on their wishes. So if we didn't have available this word Gillick competence because there'd never been 
such a case, how would we think about it? Um, but as far that's as far as I've got, John. I've just got to that question. We Deciding clearly wouldn't use that term, but what terms would we? Deciding with competent children. <laughs> oh, well, I wonder whether we talk about competence at all. I'm not Just sure. deciding with children, that we draw them out, we consider their preferences even before they may have I th- capacity I guess for such I think a big we decision. would still be thinking, if we're taking the child seriously, the child's a person, the child matters, they certainly are entitled to some information, to some involvement, to some say, and I'm now going, you know, my hands are going across <laughs> the air in space and falling off the edge of the table because I'm not sure where we would go with that have some say. So I think the question would still be there, but we clearly wouldn't answer it in those terms if there hadn't been. But I mean, I think there has to be a stop, doesn't there, that says this is where the child has to make a self-regarding decision if they wish to, and their parents don't have the right to make that decision. Is that right, Annabelle? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think if we didn't have Gillick, we'd have 18, although it depends on the state in Australia. Some states are younger than 18 by legislation. But, you know, you asked me at the outset, does Gillick work legally? And and I think we might be getting to the point where we say it doesn't work ethically, maybe. Um, But I think legally, we still need some concept. And so I think it does work legally because you said we need a tiebreaker. Well, in fact, this kind of is the tiebreaker mm, in mm, some instances mm. because someone has to, in the case of a dispute, there needs to be some law that can be applied and the courts are the place that would apply it in in this type of a situation. So I still think it has work to do, but potentially we need, that's the the high watermark, if you will, but what happens underneath it where the, in order to get to a, a better decision that doesn't lead it to the dispute and the court and things? Yeah, I think Gillick does do that, that work of setting out some criteria for um, the arbitrator or the, the person who's got, um, for example, parents who don't want this thing to happen for their child and the child who either does want it or is refusing it, you know, uh, but there's a disagreement. So the the tiebreaker work maybe that Gillick does perform is a set of criteria about who gets to be competent enough to make the decision. So it's it's who gets to make the decision on the basis of their capacity to do so and where a child has demonstrated capacity to make this particular decision and understands it, they win, uh, according to Gillick. Mm. But I think the bit that's missing is all the other bits underneath when there's not a conflict about Mm. a decision in relation to how to involve adolescence in um, their own care and and how to, I think if you take autonomy to its ethical meaning, how to promote a person's capacity to exercise their judgment. And that's the work that I think is missing that Gillick doesn't do. Gillick waits till we've got a conflict, um, and which is what the law often does. Absolutely. I don't I think it would be informative. The concepts under, underlying Gillick are, are good, um, that, a, a, you know, the decisions might be more or less complex and a younger or older child might be able to decide. I, I think they're all good ideas and, and I think they should inform that kind of a discussion but potentially shouldn't be determinative in every instance. I think that's a fantastic place for us to finish 
and at all because I think we've sort of circled back to try and get a better understanding of Gillick than we had at the beginning. But I also sense that there's still not just ethical work to be done, Claire, but there's still a lot of other work to be done in this space. So I would like to thank Annabelle for joining us today. Thank Thanks, you, Annabelle. John. Lynn. Thanks, John. And Claire. Thank you, John. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on your podcast channel and tell your friends and colleagues about essential ethics. Today's podcast was recorded in Creative Studios at the Royal Children's Hospital. The podcast was produced by Arvi Bart. If you'd like to find out more about the Children's Bioethics Centre, please visit us on our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics, be inspired. Be inspired.